to today's episode. So today is actually going to be a short episode. I will be reading the lecture by Neville Goddard titled The Power and the Wisdom. It's about nine pages long, so uh, it's a little bit too long to do in one episode, um, but short enough that I don't have to do two full episodes. So uh, I really wish that the podcast could be an hour long, but here we sit and um, have a short first episode. So again, this is a lecture titled The Power and the Wisdom by Neville Goddard. So Neville tells his audience, Wisdom is revealed truth, which cannot be logically proven. Knowledge is science. You can prove it. You can prove the theory that you had concerning going to the moon. That can be proved. Einstein's theories. They were theories, but in time, man could devise the means to test them and either prove or disprove them. So far, they've been proved. Not completely, but they have been proved. That's knowledge. But visions are described in scripture as wisdom. They're a revelation of divine truths. In the end, all knowledge will cease to be, but wisdom will remain. These visions that are eternal. So Paul speaks of Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 1.24 Now what do we mean by power? Certainly, I would say the best definition of it would be effectiveness in achieving one's purposes. But these are the purposes of God. Yet we can use power on this level to achieve a certain objective. But I am speaking now of the power of Christ. It's entirely different from anything known to man, unless he has had the experience. You taste it before the end, before you awaken from this dream. You will taste of this power, and may I tell you, it is startling. It's not destructive in the sense that you blow up a city with a hydrogen bomb or many bombs. It has nothing to do with that power. Here is a taste of it. You come into a place just like this. When I first tasted of it many years ago, I found myself moving in time. I would say backwards in time, judged by the costumes, judged by the clothes. I would say it was 150 or 150 years ago in this land of ours in the East. I would say it was in the New England States looking at the people that I saw. I was taken in spirit into this place. It was a wonderful restaurant of that day, 150 years ago. It was a Sunday afternoon. I could tell by the atmosphere. It was afternoon. I saw a table of four, two young men in their early 20s, undoubtedly college students, and then what would be their parents. Then came a lady. She was a waitress bringing a tray of food to the table. She had already served the course of soup. There was a huge big bay window through which I could look, and through this window I could see the grass moving. The wind was blowing. It was fall. I could see the leaves falling. They were dropping. I could see a bird in flight. I saw other diners, and at that moment I knew that if I could arrest the activity that I felt in me, everything would stand still. I knew it. I no sooner knew it than I tried it, and I arrested not them. I arrested the activity in me, all in my head. Everything stood still. The bird flying flew not. The grass moving moved not. 
the leaves falling fell not, the waitress walking walked not, the diners dining dined not. Everyone was as dead as things in the museum, as though they were made of clay. I examined them all. They were all dead. One moment before they were all living, living beings and everything was alive. A bird in flight, if arrested, should fall, shouldn't it? If gravitation is a law that is absolute, if it is arrested in flight, that thing should fall. It didn't fall, it stood still, just as I had arrested it. Leaves I could see, but they did not fall. Everything stood still. The grass stood still. The waitress stood still. Well, that's understandable. If you stop her, she can't go through the floor. And here are these diners and one facing me, the young boy about 22 years of age. He had the spoon almost to his mouth, and it was perfectly still. He could not move it. I looked at him. He looked like death itself. Then I released that activity within me, and everything continued in its course. The bird continued in its flight. The leaves continued to fall. The waitress continued to bring food to the table. And he brought the spoon that was here, indicating to his mouth, and completed the action. Then I knew that everything was within me. That all that I beheld, though it appeared without, it was within and my own wonderful human imagination, of which this world of mortality is but a shadow, late from Jerusalem. It is not taking place out there at all. That's tasting of the power. So he defines Christ. You read it in the first chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians, the 24th verse. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, wisdom is now defined in Scripture as a child, it's personified. We speak of wisdom. We do not think of it as a person. But may I tell you, man is everything in this world. So everything really can be personified. The eighth chapter of Proverbs personifies wisdom. And now wisdom is made to speak. And these are his words. God possessed me at the very beginning of his way the first of his acts of old, Proverbs 8.22. When he laid out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him, like a little child. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in, him, in his inhabited world, delighting in the sons of men, Proverbs 8.29-31. Now he talks to the sons of men, and he tells them, he who finds me finds life and obtains, obtains favor from God. He who misses me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Proverbs 8.35 and 39 When you read it, you say, what is he talking about? He is a little child. And this is the wonder child spoken of in Isaiah, the personification of wisdom. One day you will find the child. When you find the child, then you receive favor from God, for the child is but a symbol of his creative power, his creative wisdom. You'll find that child, those who miss me injure themselves, those who hate me. May I tell you, the majority of the world hates him, to the extent that they have no interest in him, none whatsoever. They do not wish to hear about him. 
To them it's stupid. It's folly to the Gentiles, folly to the Greeks, and certainly a stumbling block to those who look for him in some other form. Who is the child personified in scripture? It's called the infant child. That one day will be placed in your hands and you will see him as your child. But he also is a youth, as told us in the ninth chapter of Isaiah. To us a child is born, to us a son is given. The son is given, for no man knows the father except the son, and no one knows who the son is except the father, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So no man has ever seen God, the only son who is in the bosom of the father. He has made him known. So unless the son makes him known, you will never know the father. Now I'll tell you who he is. Now this is only a symbol, but when you meet the symbol, it's a living, living thing, as you are now, and it's David. Robert Browning, in his poem called Saul, now Saul was the demented king, an insane man, and in this poem called Saul, he, was da he has David, and David is about to tell the king of the coming of Messiah, of the coming of Christ, and standing in the presence of the king, Browning has him say, O Saul, a face like my face shall receive thee, a man like unto me thou shalt love, and be loved by forever. A hand like this hand shall open the gates of new life to thee. See the Christ stand. It takes the Christ to reveal the Father. He tells him, Look at me, Saul, and see the Christ stand. But Saul was demented, as we all are. He was suffering from total amnesia and could not recognize the sun. So the sun is screaming out morning, noon, and night to the father and all. But we are sound asleep and do not recognize the sun. One day he stands before you. And then there is no uncertainty as to this relationship, none whatsoever. And you'll recognize your son. Memory returns and then you realize the gift. God the Father actually, literally, became you, that you may become God. And you look at his son, his only begotten son, and you know he is your son. And he knows you are his father. And then you realize the gift that was given and bestowed upon you. He gave you his power, and he gave you his wisdom. And you will taste of these before you depart the world. After you have had these experiences... And when you take off this garment, you'll be clothed in an entirely different form. But with all the identity of person, I'll know you in eternity. There's a radical transformation of form. Yet I'll know you, but your form will be entirely different. I'll know that face raised to the nth degree of beauty and majesty. The same face, but oh, what a glorious face that was so distorted by the life you live while you're here. And I'm not speaking of any reincarnation. May I tell you, you are not reincarnated. You're individualized. And you tend forever towards ever greater and greater individualization. You are now completely individualized. I'll know that face, but the faith or but the face is raised to the nth degree of beauty and majesty, and a strength of character that you could not believe that eternity would be long enough to produce. That's the being that you are, destined one day to encounter. And it's you, and I'll know you, but I will know you as a risen Lord. I will know you as God himself. 
and yet I'll know you as my friend, my friend that I know and love. I'll know you as my friend, yet I will know you as God himself. So he tells us in his wonderful chapter concerning life, he is just talking, you will not come to me. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they who bear witness to me, yet you will not come to me that you may have life. You think in them you find it, and people will all day long search the scripture. They search and search, and one comes upon the scene. It's not what they were looking for. Well, listen to the one who comes upon the scene. He is clad in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Are you dipped in a robe of blood? Are you not wearing a body of flesh and blood? Is this, and he indicates the physical body, not something you are now clad in that is dipped in blood? Cut yourself and see if it's not blood. And who wears it? The word of God. Well, who is the word of God? Are we not told in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God? It's God himself. God actually became as we are, that we may be as he is. Blake, from There Is No Natural Religion. That is a mystery. You are now wearing a garment dipped in blood, and the name by which you are called is the word of God. Now there is a great mystery. And the word became flesh and dwelt. Now the translation is among us. But the preposition is within. It's not among, as you look over here. It is in us. God can never be so far off as to even be near. For nearness implies separation. Well then, where is he? His name forever and forever is I am. I can put the body out there and look at it. But I can't stick I am out there and look at it. I am the observing being. I can observe all the things round about me as objects, but I can't observe the observer. I can see myself in the objects round about me, revealing all the activity within me, but I, the observer, can't stick it out and look at it as another observer. So God can never be so far off as even to be near, because nearness, no matter how near, implies separation, and he is not separated from you. He actually is your very being. The true identity of man is God. Okay, so I am going to conclude the lecture here, and I will finish up with part two. Again, I'll be another short one in the next episode. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope everyone has a wonderful day, evening, depending on the time of day where you are at. All right, so again, thank you. I will see you guys in the next lecture. All right, bye.